morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Last week, we overviewed the six days of creation presented to us in Genesis 1. We saw that Genesis 1 gives all the indicators of historical narrative. We saw that it means, or we saw that the means by which God created is also indicated pretty clearly in the text. God spoke and it was created. God created by his word. And we also saw the sequence of events described in Genesis 1 differs sharply with the popular view of origins today. The sequence of events suggested by modern secular scientific theory does not fit what the text says in Genesis 1. Today, we're going to focus more closely on the first four days of creation. And here is our lesson agenda. We're going to examine the word day itself. Lots of controversy about this word. What does it exactly mean? We're going to investigate that thoroughly. We're going to talk about objections to the traditional 24-hour day view, whether those objections are substantial and valid. And then we'll consider specifically what took place on creation days one to four. Now, today is going to be a little bit more apologetic in its focus rather than life application focus. There's not going to be a separate set of application questions at the end, but I trust that this will still be edifying for us all. Let's now go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, it's so awesome to meditate on you as creator. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working, creating in a way that is more powerful, more uh, amazing, more mysterious than any creation that we do. We have to work with things that already exist, and we can only do certain things with them. But God, what is you? how can we comprehend your mind where you think such wonderful things and you bring them into existence so easily? Lord, it is a joy to go through this, but God, help me to be able to explain this well. Help us to understand and help us to be confident, to be able to um, hold fast to what your word says. Pray this would be a really blessed time together. Amen. Let's start by talking about the word day used so frequently in Genesis 1. What exactly does it mean? And how do we know that? Well, in any language, words have multiple meanings. If you look up, for example, the word run in an English dictionary, you will find about 40 meanings just for the verb form. Not to mention the meanings that are used for the word when it's a noun or an adjective. However, if a woman said to you, I got a run in my stocking while I was running to the store, and when I ran my eyes across the shelves to find my favorite, favorite brand of toothpaste, it wasn't there because they had run out. Well, even though run is used in four different ways in that sentence, you know what each one means. You understand that sentence. How is it that you know? It's all based on context. And what does that word mean? Exactly. What is surrounding the use of that word? What are the other words and phrases that are used around that word? They show you which meaning of the word is meant in a sentence. And this is a fundamental concept of language. This enables us to communicate in the elaborate ways that we do. When a word has multiple meanings, the word's meaning is very dependent on its context, especially the immediate context of a sentence. Now, this is also true for the word day, both in Hebrew and in English. Day is a word with multiple meanings. But the meaning of the word day, as intended by the author or speaker, it will become abundantly clear based on context. And allow me to demonstrate. I'm going to give to you several passages from the scripture, the Old Testament in particular, that use the word day. And as I show these to you, I want you to answer in your own mind, what does the word day or days mean in that sentence? And how do you know? Answer in your own mind, and then I'll ask you to answer out loud. So, I think I have four of these. First, Genesis 35, 28. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years. What does days mean in 
this sentence. It does refer to his lifespan, or to just generalize that slightly, days refers to a period of time with a specific length. It doesn't refer to 24 hours. It refers to a period of time with specific length. How do we know that? Oh, wait, Eric, what were you saying? Exactly. The rest of the sentence actually defines the period that is called days in the beginning part of the sentence. It says the days, they belong to Isaac, and they are defined as being 180 years. So you say, oh, this isn't referring to those other meanings of days. It must refer to a period of time that encompasses 180 years. Very good. Now let's look at another one. Leviticus 9.1. Now it came about on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Now what does day mean in this sentence? Okay, let's be more specific. A particular time. Okay, uh, you're saying date, a specific time. We can be even more specific than that. Very good. Yes, yes. So we're talking about days of the week, which are 24-hour periods. This is a 24-hour day in this sentence. How do we know that? What about this sentence shows us, yes, that's the way you interpret day here. Okay, so Glenn, you were talking about it being a particular day, and Eric kind of built on that. The number in front of the day, the, the number eighth, that is an indicator of a 24-hour day. This is a, a set of days in sequence. It's given a number. This is a 24-hour day. Also, this is a narrative passage. We see events taking place. It came about. Moses called. More likely to be a 24-hour day. So narrative passage, past tense, sequence type verbs, ordinal number, 24-hour day. Okay, very good. Let's look at another one. Numbers 11.32. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Now, what does day mean here? Hey, Eric, you said light. Mike, you said a section. Yeah, so what portion of the, of the day is meant? The daylight portion. Day here refers to the daylight portion of a set of 24 hours. And how do we know that? Because it's contrasted with night. It says all day and all night. Oh, okay, they're defined separately. So we're not talking about a 24-hour period, even though this is part of a narrative. It's distinguished from night. We're talking about the portion of a day in which there is light. Very good. Now one more. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now, what does day mean here? All right, Mike, you say season. Any other thoughts? A time period. Is this a specific time period? You say yes and no. Uh, Pastor Bobby, you said yes. Do we know the limits of this time period? It doesn't have like, oh, it began here, it, it, it ends at another point. We just know it has a certain quality to it. It's the day of adversity. It's the day of prosperity. This is an undefined period of time. How do we know that? Oh, I actually kind of started to answer that a little bit. Prosperity and adversity do not last according to 24-hour segments or the portion of a day or the, or the night or something like that. This is just a period that doesn't have a strictly defined start and end. And moreover, this is part of wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, they often speak in maxim-type language, referring to the fool, the wise men, um, particular periods of time or seasons that you go through. So because of the details in the sentence and because of the genre of literature it appears in, we would say day is an undefined period of time. 
period of time of undefined length. Oh, these are just four examples, but this is pretty simple, isn't it? Relatively straightforward. You don't need a PhD to figure out the meaning of day or days in each one of these passages. And I didn't even give you all the sentences around it. I just gave you the sentence in which, the individual sentence in which it appears. This is a good thing. This is, this is, God's, this is one of the gifts that we have in language. We can confidently determine the meaning of a word like day just by looking at the words and phrases that are used around it. Now, this sets us up for considering Genesis 1. So take your Bibles and open to Genesis 1 again, and let's ask, what does day mean in this passage? We've established that this is narrative. This is historical narrative. But let's note a few sentences that use the word day, so if we can figure out what are the days of creation. Verse 5. Genesis 1.5, notice it says, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Verse 8, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Verse 13, there was evening and there was morning a third day. Verse 19, there was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Verse 23, there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. And verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What is the sense of the word day in these verses? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, certainly it's connected with evening and morning. We'll say more about that in a second. And it certainly does have a defined period, but again, we can be more specific. What kind of days are we talking about here? These are 24-hour days. Ordinary 24-hour days. And how do we know that? Glenn already pointed to one detail, because it's paired with the terms evening and morning. And how do evening and morning connect with a 24-hour day? That's right. They're the beginning and the end, or the two portions of a day. So evening and morning, put those together, you get a whole day, a 24-hour day. What else shows us as a clue that this is a 24-hour day we're talking about here? Because of the sequence, not just the sequence of events of historical narrative connected with what's happening on these days, but because we see the number attached to each one of those days. When you see a number like second, third, fourth, if it's not separately defined and distinguished from night, we're talking about a 24-hour day. These are the three main details that all point to this being a 24-hour day. The elements of a day are given evening and morning, repeatedly, actually. The day is presented in a narrative sequence of events, one happening after the other, and because the days are all numbered. Second day, third day, etc. Say that again, Mike. Right. 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 So Mike's pointing out, we don't see some sort of insertion of clues that would point us in a different direction. Now, these all fit together like a sequence of 24-hour days. It really is that simple. When we look at the grammatical context of the word day in each one of these sentences, we see clear indicators of a 24-hour day. This is the plain sense of the text. It is the sense that the Hebrews would have understood as they received this from Moses going into the Promised Land. We're talking about simple 24-hour days. So that's the way we should take it. But if that... Even if that weren't enough, there are other compelling reasons for us to take the days of creation, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, as 24-hour periods. I'll give you four additional arguments as to why we should take the days as 24-hour days. One of these we've already seen, and that is the pattern of the Sabbath. Listen as I give to you Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11 again. Exodus 28 to 11, I mentioned this last time. This is from the Ten Commandments, particularly the commandment to keep the Sabbath. This is how God articulates it. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, that is Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. 
for in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So notice that Exodus 28 to 11 uses the fact that God created the earth in six days, then rested on the seventh day and made the seventh day holy as the reason that the Israelites must work six days and then rest on the Sabbath day. That's the whole basis, how God created the world. And this setting aside, setting apart the seventh day was no joke. You might remember in the Pentateuch, soon after this was established, there was an Israelite who went and gathered wood on the Sabbath. Do you remember what happened to him? He was executed. He was stoned to death. You got to get this right. God is serious about the Israelites keeping this day holy that God had made holy in the way he created the world. However, if the Sabbath commandment were based on a symbolic creation account, that doesn't really tell us when or how God created the world, how long it took to do so, when he did what. If the original creation week took a time longer than a literal set of six 24-hour days, then the reasoning that God himself gave Israel for keeping the Sabbath makes no sense. How could he hold them to this standard if what he said in Genesis 1 didn't actually take place? As we noted previously, God didn't need to take six whole days to create the world. He could have just done it in a moment. People say, oh, you know, why would you say God took no, six days. Certainly it took longer. Well, actually, the question we should be asking is, why did God take so long? Why did he delay? Why did he prolong this process to six whole days of creation and one day of rest? God didn't even need to rest, so why did he do that? There's only one answer. It was to set a pattern for Israel. It was for the institution of Israel's Sabbath and work pattern. And this would serve another purpose. On top of that, it would ultimately serve as a shadow pointing to the ultimate Sabbath rest found in God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Sabbath picture, the Sabbath command, they're tied up with how God created the world. But taking the creation days as something other than 24 hours, it makes this arrangement totally arbitrary. Yeah, you know, I didn't really do it this way, but that's the way I kind of told you I did it, so that's, you better keep this rule. It doesn't make any sense. So, not just the grammatical cues from Genesis 1, but the Sabbath pattern given us in Exodus 20, but then there's more. The third reason to take 24 hours is because of New Testament scriptures. New Testament scriptures. Both Jesus and the apostles speak of creation in the New Testament in a way that affirms a literal, straightforward understanding of Genesis 1 and its days. 24-hour days. Let me give you one clear example. Mark 10. Mark 10, verses 5 to 8. Jesus is speaking with Jews about marriage and divorce. And Jesus says, Mark 10, 5 to 8, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment that you can divorce. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You say, well, what does that have to do with Genesis 1? Well, think about it. This passage affirms 24-hour days in Genesis 1. Because Jesus says, from the beginning of creation. For that phrase to have any meaning or any accuracy there could not be long periods of time between day one of creation and day six of creation. Because it's on day six that God creates man. He creates male and female. He creates marriage. That must be very close to the actual start of creation on day one, or else it cannot rightly be said to be the beginning of creation. That's millions of years later. That's not the beginning of creation. The only way to keep the time period short is by taking the days to be 24 hours. 
Now, some say, well, the beginning of creation just means the beginning of the human race's creation. But that cannot be. The phrase beginning of creation appears three other times in the New Testament. One is a reference to Christ, Revelation 3.14, calling him the creation's architect and originator. And the other two both mean in their context, they must mean in the beginning of the world. That's Mark 13.19 and 2 Peter 3.4. Moreover, of the 20 times a phrase in the beginning appears in the New Testament, none of those other times, other 19 times, refer to the beginning of the human race. So there's nothing from the passage in Mark 10, 5 to 8 that says, oh, this is just the beginning of the human race. It's much plainer to say, oh, this is the beginning of the world, the entire creation. And there's nothing else in the New Testament that would make us take it that way. So why take it that way? Except you want to fit in certain ideas that come from outside the Bible. There's no concrete reason from the immediate passage of the rest of the Bible to take Jesus' meaning in Mark 10.6 to be referring only to the beginning of man's creation. So, Jesus affirms 24-hour days in Genesis 1. Two other New Testament scriptures that do the same are Mark 13.19 and Luke 11.50-51. Mark 13.19, Luke 11.50-51. We don't have time to look at those right now, but you can look at those later. Chapters 11 and 12 and coming to grips with Genesis also explain these scriptures very nicely. All right, so we see three reasons. Let me give you a fourth. It must be 24-hour periods because otherwise we have a problem with death and disease. One of the reasons why people want to see long ages in the days of creation is because they need these to support evolution and the current popular interpretation of the fossil record. We need long ages of time to explain the death, the disease, the thorns, the carnivore killing that we do see in the fossil record. But there's a problem. Those things require death. Those things require things that are not good. Those things require a curse. How can these things have appeared before the fall? If these things appear in the fossil record, and we need millions of years to allow it to play out, how can these things have appeared before God finished his creation? How could that be on a world that God, the finishing of his creation, says is very good? A world that does not yet see death. Death, disease, thorns, carnivore behavior, these are all seen in the fossil record, by the way. They don't qualify as good, and they contradict what the scriptures themselves say about God's curse on creation. In the New Testament, for example, Romans 5.12, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, death entered the world through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans says death came in through Adam's transgression, not the way God created the world. And Romans 8.20-21, Romans 8.20-21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Vanity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Death, the corruption, disease, thorns, that's part of the vanity of this world. And creation longs to be set free from that. That's not the way God made it. It was the way God subjected it, though, after man rebelled. That was not part of God's originally good creation. So to force long ages into 24-hour days, it actually creates a problem by making God put corruption into the world before the fall. Non-24-hour days pose a serious theological problem because they bring in these not-good elements into part of God's very good creation. That's four reasons, and let me just give you one more. Church history. Church history up to the 1700s. I, again, said something about this last time, but I'll say more about this now. Before the popularization of what's called geological uniformitarianism. Now, if you've heard the term uniformitarianism, actually, does anybody know what that means? Can anybody define that for us? The scientific concept in which you say the present is the key to the past. If we want to understand how the world was and how processes took place in the past, let's just look at how the world is now. How long does it take for something to happen now? 
that must be what took place in the past. It takes this long for a rock to get eroded today. Well, where did the rocks come from that, that stand in the Grand Canyon? Well, it must have been a long process of erosion. It must have been really long. It must have been millions of years because the present is the key to the past. But there's a key assumption in that, that the past is not very different from the present. There wasn't some catastrophic event. There wasn't some supernatural event that, um, that would change things in a way that we didn't expect. In one sense, this idea of, okay, things are constant in the world, it is a, it is a basic concept in science. But when you apply it to geology or certain things to how the world was formed, how the terrain came about, how, how various things of the world came about, you run into some problems. Geological uniformitarianism became very popular in the late 1700s. Everything we see today explains everything we see in the past. Before that, oh, I guess I should say something else. Once people started to do that, that's when certain Christians, even certain Christian leaders, started to say, well, maybe the days of creation aren't 24 hours. Because like all these scientists, they're saying it took way more than a certain number of years, uh, uh, what I guess young earth people were saying at the time, 6,000 years. Oh, though, the geology of the world could never have been formed in 6,000 years. It needed millions of years. Oh, oh, well, maybe we need to reinterpret this. Before that, before these uniformitarianism ideas became popular, and by the way, <laughs> Second Peter totally contradicts uniformitarianism. If you remember that passage from Peter where he says, they suppose Jesus is not going to come again because everything that we see now is everything that there was in the past and everything that's going to be. But Peter says, they forget that God created the world out of nothing. <laughs> that was a big change. That was very different. And that God flooded the world. That was a big change, and that was very different. And God's going to make another big change in the future when he comes back. It's not going to be like the, the way things are now. There's going to be God's, uh, not catastrophic, but this momentous intervention of God into human history that even reshapes the world. So actually uniformitarianism has super big problems when you just consider it from the scriptures. But before that idea began to start finding its way into the church, virtually every Christian theologian took the days of Genesis 1 as 24-hour days. There were some exceptions, but for the vast majority of church history, every church leader is saying, obviously, 24-hour days. Why is this even a question? The Age of Enlightenment, understand, that's kind of where uniformitarianism appears within that period. Age of Enlightenment, people are getting obsessed with autonomous human reasoning. It was not the first time that the church encountered naturalistic explanations of the universe's origins. This is actually kind of surprising, though it shouldn't be. Let me give you an example. There's a great set of sermons on Genesis 1 from a certain 4th century church father, Basil of Caesarea. We actually met this guy in our church history course briefly. He's one of the Cappadocian fathers. Love those guys. Three persons who are key for arguing the divinity of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus Christ and the Arian controversy. Basil's one of them. He preaches this sermon series on Genesis 1, and in these sermons, quite plainly takes Genesis 1 as actual history, and he laments the folly of those who distrust the Genesis account, namely people who were not Christian. People who distrust the Genesis account and suppose that the universe came about merely by the chance interaction of material elements to somehow create life in increasingly advanced forms. Doesn't that sound like the same theories that are being offered today? Big Bang evolution? A version of that existed in the 4th century. And listen to one exhortation from one of his sermons <laughs> that I just find really funny. This is from homily 8. It seems particularly appropriate today. He says, avoid the nonsense of those arrogant philosophers who do not blush to liken their soul to that of a dog. I was once a dog. We were once dogs. And then we got to a higher form. Who say that they have been formerly themselves women, shrubs, fish. Have they ever been a fish? I do not know, but I do not fear to affirm that in their writings they show less sense than fish. Well said, Basil. You should hear the rest of what he wrote. Don't have time for it now, but 
if you're interested, it's in his sermon series called the Hexameron, which means six days. But this is just one example. Early Christians, they faced claims of naturalistic origin from the world's philosophers, and they responded by saying the Genesis 1 account is true. God didn't create with the processes that you say. He created how Genesis 1 says, by speaking in 24-hour periods. Moreover, early Christians lived in a time in which many ancient cultures claimed to have histories that went back tens of thousands of years. Oh, our civilization is very old. We were established 100,000 years ago. Egypt would say things like that, and other civilizations too. Yet Christians confidently dismissed those claims. They say, your, your civilization's not that long. Why would they do that? Because they trusted the Bible's history. They looked at what Genesis said, and they actually came to the conclusion that the universe was less than 6,000 years old. It was only during the Enlightenment, so end of the 1700s into the 1800s, that many Christians backpedaled on creation, miracles, other aspects of the Bible that didn't seem reasonable according to new trends in man's thinking. It was only when they changed then, but nobody saw that in the text of Genesis 1 before that. Virtually nobody. So that, again, that is strong evidence for us, or strong reason for us to ask, why should we take it differently? Is there really something in the text that our brothers missed for 1,700 years? Or is it really something outside the text that is, course, that is pressuring us to change the way we interpret it, to move us away from the plain sense? I don't know where I, I can explain this fully in the course, but I, I've been wanting to say this. There's a wonderful systematic theology that I got to read as part of my seminary education, written by, um, oh man, his name is escaping me. Why can I not remember it right now? Maybe it'll come in my explanation. But this systematic theology, explaining the various aspects of God and theology, so readable, so worshipful, but the writer waffles on creation. He says, oh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether, wait, who is it? Wayne Grudem. Thank you. Thank you. Wife for the wind. Wayne Grudem Based on his writings, I, I love him as a brother. He's a continuationist. I don't agree with that. He also waffles on creation. And it's so interesting. If you read that section where he talks about it, he says, if you look at the text, it indicates 24-hour creation. But if you look at the scientific evidence, it seems to suggest something different. So I don't know. In the end, he says he doesn't know how to interpret it. I think he's, he's pointing out something that is poignant, and that is, the text is clear. A lot of people say, well, you know, Genesis is kind of, you know, we don't really know. No, the text is clear. You say, well, what do you do with the evidence? Well, you've got to interpret the evidence through the lens of Scripture. And it is, you are able to do that. It's not as if we say, oh, no, what are we going to do with this evidence? No, Christians are able to deal with the evidence. It's just a matter of where do you start from? Do you start from the Scriptures and assess the evidence, or do you start with man's theories using the evidence to assess the Scriptures? So anyways, I'm taking a little bit longer with this than, than I meant to, but plenty of reason for us to take the days of Genesis 1 as 24-hour days. Clear grammatical cues from the text has to fit this way to make the Sabbath command work. The New Testament's treatment of creation, the problem of death and corruption, if we take it then something else besides 24-hour days, and the witness of church history. So I hope you see that we have every reason to be confident that the days of creation are indeed 24-hour days period. Simple 24-hour days. Now, I think we could just leave that issue right there, and that would be very helpful. But let me do even more for you. Let me talk about four objections to the 24-hour view that people have raised and see if we can't respond to them in a cogent way. Four main objections. Maybe you have them. Maybe you've heard them. Genesis 1 can't be talking about 24-hour days because the sun wasn't created until day 4. There's no sun. Can't be day. Can't be night. Can't be 24-hour period. Well, the answer to this objection is actually fairly simple. Can any of you guess what it is? Danny? Yeah, God did it. God doesn't need the sun to have a 24-hour day. He himself supplies the light. He himself enables there to be a period of light and darkness. 
I mean, in the new heavens and the new earth, it says that the lamb is the lamp. There's no need of a son. Why is there a need of a son on day one? God can do it. And you know what's interesting? This is not a novel reply. Our brothers in the early church made the same reply to the philosophers who objected the same way. Say, God can make a day without the sun. You don't need a sun to have day and night. God caused the light to shine supernaturally, and he must have had it be a directional light because there was also darkness. The earth was apparently rotating at that time so that you had day and night, evening and morning, 24 hours. No reason that God couldn't do this, and that's what the straightforward sense of Genesis 1 requires. Yeah, Leela. Yeah. I mean, if God is speaking things into existence, why is it a problem for him to create day without the sun? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 should be, it shouldn't be surprising. Another objection. Genesis 2.4 shows us that the days of Genesis 1 are not necessarily literal. Hmm. Let's see what Genesis 2.4 says. Take a look at that. Genesis 2.4. Actually, I'll read verses 1 to 4 to give you a little bit more context. Genesis 2, 1 to 4. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Uh-oh. It says the day. Oh, no. This is a contradiction in the text. No, it's not. This is actually not a problem at all. Why does verse 4 of chapter 2 not contradict everything we just said about the days of Genesis 1? Yeah, Dwayne. Exactly. Yeah, Dwayne is pointing out how, in my example earlier, I used the word run in the same sentence in four different ways. But that wasn't a problem. It's the same thing here. Day is being used with a different meaning in verse 4 than it has been used even in the three verses right before it. You say, oh, you know, that was a big shift. No, this is normal for language. In fact, the clues are all there. How do we know that this day is not a 24-hour day in verse 4? Notice what clues are missing. We don't have it defined separately, evening and morning. We don't have a number put in front of it, like second, third, fourth. And we have a whole chapter of Genesis explaining that God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Context would require just logically that day would have a separate meaning in Genesis 2.4. The meaning of the word day here is an undefined period. This is normal for language. That's just the context of this sentence. You can use different meanings even close together. We don't have the same clues with this word as we do with the ones in Genesis 1. This is not really a contradiction. By the way, <clears throat> the phrase in the day that God created, beyom in Hebrew, it can be correctly translated as simply with the word when. You don't even have to say, in the day God created. You can say, when God created. It's, it has the, essentially the same meaning. And that's important because we're going to come to the same issue, or you're going to come to the same issue, when God says, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But we know what happens. They eat, and they're still alive after that. They continue to live for a long time, but they don't die. Wait, I thought God said, on that day they were going to die. It's the same phrase, when you eat of it. Death is going to be the result. So this is not talking about in a particular 24-hour day. It does not contradict Genesis 1. Third objection. What about 2 Peter 3.8, which says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Surely this shows us that these days of Genesis 1, they could represent thousands 
or even millions of years in God's eyes. I've heard this objection more than once. But to respond to it, we need to understand 2 Peter 3.8 in context. Listen to verse 9 of 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So remember what Peter is talking about in that section of Scripture. This is actually the same section where we talked about the uniformitarianism problem. Peter's audience, they are persecuted believers who are also dealing with false teachers. And they're wondering about the apparent slowness of God to keep his promise to come back to the earth, rescue his people, judge wickedness. There were godless mockers saying that God was never going to come. Nothing was going to change on the earth. But Peter reminds the believers that God isn't slow at all. And in fact, God's sense of time is totally different from ours. It can't even be fully described. Verse 8, notice, or just think back to what I read to you. 2 Peter 3, 8, not only says that a day is like a thousand years, but also that a thousand years are like a day. How can those both be true? How can time for God be both really slow and really fast? And just as you were saying, Judy, God is not bound by time. He can enter into time. He can interact with us in time, and yet he's not bound by time. We cannot fully understand time from God's perspective. But we can know what Peter says, that God is patient, and he does everything at exactly the right time. That's the point of 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. The point of that passage is not, understand, it is not to give us a formula for understanding days from God's perspective. Or God days, as some call it. Because if it were, if this were some kind of formula, we'd be hopelessly lost. Because we get two contradictory formulas. Is a God day a thousand earth years? Or is it one one thousandth of an earth day? Which is a God day? Not to mention we have Psalm 90 verse 4, which complicates the whole thing because it says a thousand years are like a watch in the night for the Lord. A watch in the night is about three hours. So which formula are we supposed to use? It's fruitless for us to try and figure that out because God doesn't experience days at all like we do. God is an eternal and infinite being. Time doesn't pass for him like us. It doesn't even go by really slow or really fast. It's totally different. Furthermore, it would be absolutely useless, useless for any part of the Bible to speak to us in terms like God days. Why is that useless? I mean, first of all, there's no such thing. But second of all, even if there were, it wouldn't help us. We couldn't understand it because we don't live in God days. We live in human days. We don't experience those kind of days. Talking in terms of God days would only make sense if God were talking to himself. But the Bible is God revealing himself to us. To talk in terms of God days, it wouldn't be helpful to us. That would, we would only misunderstand. In fact, this would go against the pattern of the way God speaks to us in his word. Every time that God gives specific measurements in the Bible, he doesn't give it in some sort of unit we've never heard of. God speaks in terms of human measurements. He always speaks in human terms. For example, when God gives Noah the measurements of the ark, he gives it to him in cubits, a measurement that Noah understood, and so do the Hebrews. Or when he gives the measurements of the New Jerusalem to the Apostle John in Revelation, he gives it in terms of stadia, a Greek measurement that John would have understood. Revelation 21.17 even says this. Revelation 21.17, And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Isn't that interesting? Human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, these are just measurements of length and distance. Similarly in the Bible, God always gives measurements of time in terms of human measurements. Days, weeks, months, years, hours. 
God wrote the Bible to communicate with us. It only makes sense that he would use measurements that we understand, a system that we ourselves use. So therefore, there's no reason for us to change our understanding of Genesis days based on 2 Peter 3.8 or Psalm 90. We shouldn't be looking for days from God's perspective, God days. No, God speaks to us in terms of human days. Otherwise, it's hopelessly incomprehensible. One final objection. Actually, I'm not sure we'll have time to go through that. And it's somewhat more of a niche objection, so if we have time at the end, I'll come back to it. But uh, some saying, based on Hebrews 4, the Sabbath, the Sabbath never ended, the Sabbath rest of God, so therefore day 7 never ended. But there's a whole bunch of problems with that, which I'll come back to if we have time. So the objections that people raise against a 24-hour view, they ultimately don't hold water. And the text is very clear, and even some things out just from church history and other places make it so we can be confident. The days of Genesis 1, the creation days, are 24-hour periods of time. So with all that, let's actually examine what took place in those first four sets of 24 hours, first 96 hours of the Earth's existence, days 1 to 4. That's what I'm going to do with the last portion of our class. We're looking at Genesis 1 to 19. In Genesis 1, verses 1 to 19, for sake of time, we won't reread all the verses, but just glance with me as, as we work through this passage, just trying to observe what happens on each day. Day 1 is verses 1 to 5. What happens on day 1? What does God do? Danny, you said something? Okay, he made light and by that, made day and night. What else did he do? That's right. He had to create the earth and the heavens. Remember, we, went, we talked about that last time? He didn't just create light on day one. He also created the earth and the heavens. So we could say on day one, God creates the formless earth with water, the empty heavens, time, and light, and separates the light from the darkness. God names the light. He names the darkness day and night, respectively. What happens on day two of creation? This is verses six to eight. That's right. God, he creates an expanse or firmament in the heavens. And he separates the water by this expanse. There are waters below and there are waters above. And he names the expanse heavens. So day two, water is divided by expanse, and the sky is created. The heaven is created. What happens on day three, verses 9 to 13? Dry land was not created. We have to be careful about this. It was revealed. Very good. The land was apparently already created, but it was made to appear because what did God do? He did speak. He gathered the waters into one place. So the waters that were below, he gathered into one place, and he caused the dry land to appear. And he named the dry land earth, and he names the gathered waters seas. And he also did something else. He created all the vegetation on the land, all the kinds of of plants and trees that also reproduce according to their kinds. And then what happened on day four? This is verses 14 and 19. He creates the sun, creates the moon, and creates the stars, all the hosts of heaven. The Hebrew word for stars in verse 16, it could indicate anything that shined in the night sky. So it might be like, well, what about the comets, the asteroids? That's all covered. All covered in that term stars. And when these lights were created, the text actually gives us a few purposes for them. They are to, according to verse 14 and 18, they are to serve as agents that divide day and night. They are to serve as time markers for signs, seasons, days, and years, according to verse 14. And they are to give light to the earth, verse 15 and 17. So God was producing the light before, and then he kind of hands that task over to the celestial bodies on day four, and he says, now you're going to be the ones that produce the light. That's what we see in the first four days of creation. This is God forming 
finishing forming the earth and the heavens. Now, two questions of interpretation, kind of big ones. What are the waters above that God establishes on day two? What are the waters above the heavens? Not a super easy question to answer. The most intuitive answer is that the water above is the water that's visible in the sky as clouds, and that falls back down to the earth as rain. And I can imagine the ancient Hebrews being like, yeah, water's above. Others have proposed that the water above refers to a canopy of water that once surrounded the earth but fell during the flood of Noah. But there are some problems with these two main views. Verse 14, if you look back at that, it says that the celestial lights were placed in the expanse, in heaven, while the waters were above the expanse. Wait a second. Could the sun, moon, and stars be placed within the sky, earth's atmosphere, or in a canopy above the water? Certainly they're not below the water, are they? Yet that's what the text seems to say. Isn't that physically impossible? Also, Psalm 148, verses 3 to 4, Psalm 148, verses 3 to 4, calls for creation to praise God by saying, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens, and the waters that are above the heavens. In other words, according to this psalm, not only are the waters above the heavens associated with the highest height of heaven, but they're apparently still there after the flood. Uh-oh. What do we do? Well, some have suggested a third interpretation for the waters above. They say that it actually describes a wall of water at the edge of the universe. That is to say, our universe exists in a giant bubble. Okay. That avoids the previously mentioned problems in Genesis 1 and Psalm 148, but it seems kind of complicated. Would the Hebrews of Moses' day, would the psalmist in Psalm 148 understand this complicated sense? Call on the universe bubble to praise God? I think the best answer to this question, for what are the waters above, is actually the first, that it is simply the clouds. And the reason why this works is because Genesis 1 is using phenomenological language to describe the heavens and its precipitation. That is, how the waters above appear to viewers on earth rather than strictly scientific language. And this is not a cop-out. We actually do this kind of thing all the time in our language. I mean, consider the term sunrise and sunset. Scientifically speaking, the sun does not rise. And the sun does not set. It's standing still relative to the planets of the solar system as those planets rotate in place and then revolve around the sun. But from the perspective of somebody standing on Earth, the sun appears to rise, to move, to set. So using terms like sunrise and sunset, it is accurate, phenomenologically speaking. In the same way, when the Hebrews looked up at the sky, they didn't see it as we do, with many different atmospheric and astronomical layers, some closer, some farther away. They saw it actually much more together, almost like Earth was contained in a dome. And the clouds, the sun, moon, stars, etc., they were all pieces that moved along the surface, the ceiling of this dome. Therefore, to refer to the waters as being at the same level of the stars, it would be phenomenologically accurate for the Hebrews. That's what it looked like, even if that's scientifically not strictly true. And as to Genesis 1.14's assertion of the waters being above the firmament, the Hebrew preposition that's translated above can also be translated on. So rather than thinking the waters standing above the stars, Think of it more like on the inside of this ceiling, what looks like a ceiling, the waters are sitting on the inner portion of it. So actually in front of the stars and the rest of the heavens. So it's like the waters on the surface of the ceiling and the stars and sun and everything is also behind it. 
So I see the waters above as simply referring to the water in the Earth's atmosphere. This is just accurate phenomenologically speaking. This isn't trying to be a scientific statement. But whatever exactly the waters above refer to, we can say for sure that on day two, God more fully formed the heavens, including the Earth's atmosphere and cosmos. Finally, let's return to the plants that it created on day three. Three times we see the phrase in that section, after their kind, and appearing in connection with the plants and trees producing seed. What does the phrase, after their kind, tell us about these first plants? Judy, you had something? Uh, depending on what you mean, you say all the same. What's all the same? Okay, I think I'm following what you're saying. There were different kinds created, but for a particular kind, when it's said that it's going to reproduce with its seed after its kind, it's always going to be the same kind. So if it's a wheat, it's going to continue to be a wheat. This is important. This phrase, after their kind, it tells us that these first plants and trees, they could be classified according to kinds, and they would reproduce in a way that is consistent with that kind. So to say that another way, when God created vegetation... He created them in fundamental kinds, and these kinds only reproduced after or according to those kinds. And this is actually what we observe today, isn't it? We can scientifically classify distinct kinds of plants according to their similar characteristics, according to their fertility with one another. And you can think about different kinds that you have seen or eat. There are many different colors, many different shapes, many different flavors but only of particular kinds. Say, a pepper kind. There are lots of different kinds of peppers. And yet, they're all peppers. Or, as Judy mentioned, there's types of grains. Wheat, barley, oats, rye. But they're all grains. Now, if you plant pepper seeds, are you going to get something other than a pepper plant? No. Or if you plant some barley seeds, are you going to get something other than a grain? No. They reproduce according to kind. It's not as if you plant one of those, you suddenly get a pumpkin plant or a watermelon. Now, depending on how you bred your plants, you might see new variations within the kind. I planted this certain kind of pepper, and it came out a slightly different kind of pepper. That is possible. But you're not going to see a plant suddenly become a new kind. This is what God is describing for us in verses 11 to 13 of Genesis 1. On day three... God created the original kinds of each plant all at the same time. So the pepper kind, the grain kind, the onion kind, the berry kind, the bean kind, whatever the main kinds are. These kinds did not yet have the great variation that we see in our world today. They contained within them, though, the genes that produce the great variety that is now evident. And this is another way, really, that the and Genesis' account contradicts what is asserted by popular scientific theory today, evolutionary theory. Evolution supporters see all life originating from one source and then branching out in various directions according to evolutionary change. This branching, this sub-branching forms or from a common source is sometimes referred to as the tree of life. I have a picture of it up there. From the evolutionary perspective of plants, there was first a progenitor plant, or plants, and these first few plants evolved in multiple directions. Over millions of years, these first plants produced plant offspring that changed kinds, becoming new kinds of plants through the process of evolution, and that process has repeated until the present day. So the theory goes. But that's not what Genesis says. It's not what the trustworthy word of God says. In the Genesis account, instead of describing a tree of life, we have what's sometimes called an orchard of life. All the different kinds of plants were present at the beginning, and always reproduced according to their kind, but increasingly they would display variety within the kind over time, but never changing kind. And as we'll see next week, this fact would also prove true of animals created on day five and six, and also man. Animals and man reproduce according to fundamental kinds. Lots of variation within the kind,
a never-changing kind. So to recap what we've seen today, we've observed evidence for why the days of creation should be taken as ordinary 24-hour days. We've discussed answers to some objections to the normal understanding of days in that way. We've also looked at specifically what God accomplished on the first four days of the creation week. We are out of time now. If you have questions or comments based on what you heard, please come talk with me afterwards or email me. Next time, looking at days five and six of creation. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Your word is true. The wisdom of the world has proved foolish. So often, Lord, when compared to your word, we can trust your account. There is not truly evidence that contradicts, that shows that your word is not true. No, Lord, we start with your word, and when we use that to assess the evidence, it fits. It's not really a big problem, and that's encouraging, Lord. Help us, Lord, to praise you, give, your, give you glory for the way you created the world. It is truly awesome. It displayed your power. It displayed your wisdom and your creativity. We enjoy this creation that you've made, even while it has been marred by the curse. But Lord, I pray that we would, as, as we enjoy this creation, be directing our fellow men and women to get right with their creator. For Lord, we are all beholden to you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.